This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there, this is Kevin Lindsay, and welcome to Systems and Cybernetics. I'm back after a short break, during which I spent time demolishing a system that was the inside of my house. Fingers crossed, no unintended consequences will manifest in the future, but I'm not so sure of that. Today, I am really excited to be in conversation with my guest, Carol Samford, about her latest book, Indirect Work, a regenerative change theory for business, communities, institutions, and humans. Carol is a best-selling award-winning author, business educator, and designer of membership communities. Her books are required reading in multiple departments from Stanford here on the West Coast to Harvard on the East. For 40 years, she's collaborated with leaders to develop people and businesses to express their singular capabilities. Carol's clients include companies like Colgate, DuPont, and 7th Generation, and Google's Innovation Lab uses her responsible business framework. Carol's own podcast, Second Opinion on Business Practice, is awesome and can be found on her website, carolsanford.com, or iTunes and Google Play. Welcome, Carol, to Systems and Cybernetics. Thanks so much for joining me today. Well, you're welcome, Kevin. Thank you for inviting me. Looking forward. Yeah, I am really looking forward to this conversation too. And I'd love to start by having you talk a little bit about your background and your relationship with systems and systems thinking. Can we start there? Sure, we can start there. All right. So let's just start in college then, because that's where I really connected first. Um, Two different paths there. I was... uh, couldn't quite figure out what to major in. I ended up with uh, two majors and a minor by the time I left Berkeley. But one of the things that really changed the course of my life was we had a guy teaching there you may have heard of, Thomas Kuhn. He wrote uh, The Structure of the Scientific Revolution. He was a what do they call him? A visiting scholar, I think. And I sat in his classes and I learned for the first time the truth moved. It was not constant. And that he had just published his, uh, his book. And 
learning the idea that there was something called paradigms was my, I think, first introduction to systems, that they become so cohesive that we can't actually see what's forming and shaping them. So that had a huge influence, particularly a question one of us asked uh, at the Rat Scaler at the end of the day about how in the world did you help other people see this and, and change their mind? And he said very clearly, well, I came up with the idea that's your job now to go work on that. So I took that so seriously that by the time I was 27, I created a framework for understanding systems in paradigm language and way to understand what the cohesiveness was. I also got to, in my introductory physics class, study with Edward Teller, who is one of the um, architects of uh, hydrogen bomb and then was involved in atom bomb. But in our class, it was huge auditorium. We had... um, Many people who had been students of David Bohm when he was there and worked on his doctorate. And they always came to sit in with Teller. And so I got to one of my TAs joined, or in, I'm not sure, well, I've forgotten all the details, but he had been connected to Bohm. So I got to be a part of a group that studied about it. So click forward, probably, uh, well, the first big introduction to living systems thinking, which is not all system thinking is like. And I published an article in the late 90s at Wharton School on the four or five, five, I think, different kinds of system thinking and how people were getting trapped in the machine version of it that was coming out of MIT and Jay Forrester. And I've written many evolutions of that. So living system thinking, uh, I got from my grandfather. So I have to go back in time a bit, who's uh, part Mohawk. Uh, He he always says I have to put in the part uh, because I'm very proud of it, but I don't have the blood quantum to be Mohawk. Uh, But he... um, was amazing in his engagements with me as a child. He worked for the, um, what they call them, the people who help farmers, the Farm farm Bureau. And they help people learn how to work with soil and agriculture and the Agriculture Extension Service. And he would take me with him out to take care of pigs and the farm and the market, always talking to me about how those things work. Not as he wasn't educating me about what he thought, but asking me all the time, how did I think of market work? Why did people come to a market? What have to do with their lives? And he would do the same thing with pigs. They, he'd let them out of the pen after we went down and put the slop right in the troughs and stuff. And they would follow us down to a creek, right? Uh, that was, we'd just all sit down by and just like the pigs were our friend. And it was a, a very good way to work about, learn about how life worked. Uh, I had um, complications in my parenting structure, but I had so much help with my grandfather. So when I I met a group of folks who had been applying all those kind of things into the business world, 
when I was 33 years old, I'm about to be 80, as you can tell, I'm an old lady, um, but I could see at 33 how this community, which had founded the first real systems work at Procter & Gamble in the early 60s, and I met him at the end of the 70s, was making sense of how the world worked and how trying to help business. And even A.L. Lafley, who was uh, CEO of P&G for years, said this was a turning point for P&G. So I got embedded with that group of people and uh, eventually created my own communities of people who we come together many, many times a year, uh, eight weekends a year, plus a bunch of other stuff, working on, because I don't think this is something you take a course and then you're done, at least in my case, I'm still learning about it. So maybe that gives you a, a taste for yeah, yeah it, it does. Um, and I'm just going to um, warn you and and uh, and the listeners. I have a dog that that tends to snore, and normally he's quiet, and he's more quiet if he's in the room with me. On this occasion, he might not be. So that might be the sound. It's not my stomach growling. I did have breakfast this morning. Um, and it's so, not either of us snoring. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I haven't put you to sleep. You haven't put me to sleep. It's 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 Finnegan over there. Um, so I, I want to um, share that you know my first exposure to your work was your 2020 book, The Regenerative Life, um, which I really encourage listeners to check out as well. Um, we're not talking about that one today. Um, we're talking about your newest book, and um, I. I mentioned to you in our prior conversation that I am drawn to um, work that starts to bring um, a lot of the systems theory, the models that 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 we've talked a lot about on this on this channel previously and with different authors to really bring those things to life. And by that I mean, you know, at the at the human level, at the at the level of the individual as well as as human. Um, organizations, communities, businesses, and, and so on. I find that really interesting. And um, so, you know, when I read this book, um, it, it definitely struck me that, uh, hey, this, this, this book is right up my alley and, and you'd be an ideal person for a conversation here on systems and cybernetics. Um, early in the book, you write that in their efforts to do good, people are unintentionally keeping in place the very infrastructures, mental and physical, they would like to transform. And I guess that's kind of where I'd like to to start this conversation as a way to launch into indirect work and and really hear from you what it is and how can it facilitate systems level change. Uh, When I, let me give a little background on what I mean by do good, because I consider my primary audience people who are well-intended and who are seeking to really be changed. But it's a paradigm that's uh, wrapped up in the idea that one group knows what is right and create a set of ideals. It's uh, the same foundation as when we do uh, uh, colonizing. So when the uh, Europeans came here and colonized this country, they thought they were doing a favor 
for all the native peoples who lived here, including taking their children away from them and putting them in schools and not allowing, allowing speaking of their native language. So it depends on whose definition of good. That And I find well-intended people all wrapped up in missions and visions. And if you just listen to that, it says how anthropocentric that idea is, that we as a group have worked on ourselves, we've studied things, we know how life works, and we're going to tell you what the ideals are. Now, Einstein offered that idea, which is really what I'm speaking to in that quote that you talked about, where uh, well-intended people end up undermining their own intentions Um Einstein said in 27 places, don't use the mind that created the problem to try and create the new path into the new era. I'm sure you've read that almost every author, speaker, people who explore this kind of stuff quote that. Now, I happen to have a little bit of an insight on what it meant because the students I was with at Berkeley, including Edward Teller, studied with... um, Einstein when he was teaching at Princeton, and they asked the question about what he meant by that. Now, here's a a shorthand version. Uh, He said, if you look at Newtonian physics, what's really uh, metaphorically at work there is Newton was thinking like a billiard ball player. Now, I'm saying what he said, but I think he made a pool table because he described where someone decides what the pockets are that everyone should be in, and then they uh, look and see who the cue balls, the people who need to be moved in those pockets are, and they think that uh, they are the cue stick, and they can maneuver it to get those people into the pockets, which means they are acting as though they know the answers. Now, you can see that's related to my do-good paradigm. Thank you, Thomas Kuhn, for helping me uh, think about that. He said, what we've learned in quantum physics is that the Newtonian model actually is only used to us really in the physical world, not in in, uh, physical phenomena. What we have to do is learn to think in a matrix mode. Now, think about what a matrix means. And he used the uh, idea of a woman being pregnant and the matrix is literally the womb. You don't get to decide for that fetus, whether it's a gorilla or a human or whatever mammal, you don't get to decide what it becomes. You can't do anything except try and keep the matrix healthy. You can, and you have to learn what it is that that uh, being growing needs to draw on. And so he said, us learning that our work is, and he even was working with Heisenberg at that point, and he said, we've learned that most of the time when we try and move something, it actually ricochets. We can't even the pool table if we try and move humans around. No, we've got the right pockets that if we hit them, they're going to go where we want on our billiard table slash pool table. And more importantly, that the cue stick actually has an ability to determine velocity or direction or uh, outcome. 
because we know that often uh, many things move at one time. He said, our major work now is to learn to understand how things are working, not uh, how we can uh, maneuver them and manipulate them. So now let me translate that, if you would, to um, what my quote means that you cited. What I see is, and I say this to all the people who are in my communities, whether they're corporate leadership groups or their change agents in a different community, that the moment we get into proscribing and creating ideals and projecting those and teaching them and putting them into uh, missions, we have defined ourselves as acoustic, not as a nurturer of a womb and not as the uh, entity that has to learn first to be receptive to what the fetus is doing and to ask what our role is, not to define the fetus and its eventual outcome, and not to therefore try and intervene in its growth or its direction, but move into being nurturers of the matrix. So what I meant is, Right now, every well-intended initiative I see from climate change to racism to uh, pandemic management to inequality all are uh, based on somebody knows the answer and we're going to convince the other people and we'll vote the ones who don't see this out of office and we'll uh, maybe do some demonstrations and convince them. It's all about uh, manipulating from good intentions rather than asking what it takes to have a healthy matrix. Did that translate? <laughs> it did. And I really resonated with, with that when I read it in the book and, you know, just, I, I wrote down your quote, we are not on earth to knock things around in, you know, in reference to that billiard ball um, metaphor. I just, Wow. I mean, that was just one of those, those takeaways for me. So I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, in the book, you provide what you call intermezzos. And uh, we talked a little bit about these because you really encourage the reader to be diligent about doing them. And, you know, after every chapter, do some work, right? And, um, and, and I commented that I, I did some, you know, some I put aside for later, but these are really opportunities to reflect and put into practice what the reader has been learning. And I love them. I, no, I think it's they're not. No, no, okay. it's so not. How do you, you describe them? They are to do zero work on incorporating what you learned. That's a humanist theory. And that's why I wanted to know whether you read them. You missed the point, Kevin. So let me tell you the point. Yes, you very much missed it. And so you don't feel too bad, 60% of the people, it looks like, miss it. Now, the reason is you're conditioned to learn from smart people. And you're putting me in a class of smart people, right? So you want to be able to incorporate what I know. Book number seven is called No More Gold Stars. And the reason it's called that is I'm trying to stop people from absorbing others' ideas, from borrowing others. The whole point of the Inmetso, and I want you, if you would allow me to give you an instruction, to go back and reread the introduction of the Inmetso. It says, watch your own mind. Watch how 
easy it is for you to try and learn what I know, not question, not challenge, not form your own thoughts, not disagree, but we are conditioned by behaviorist theory for the last 100 years to absorb and borrow. This is the key word, borrow other people's ideas unexamined. So I was asking for the intermezzos for you to reject initially everything I say. And notice how your mind will not let you when you've decided I am, I've got some answers. You now want those answers. And my point is to try and keep you. Now, a few people, I had pre-readers. I had 160 people who pre-read this book so I could find out what they did with it. And um, those that did manage to get the point, like, be really careful. Don't make notes about what I said uh, and what you're going to do with it. Instead, watch your own mind. Question your own mind. Watch how lazy it is. Watch how much it wants to adopt. And then most exercises are given to people to incorporate the learner's ideas. I was trying to stop you from incorporating the, the writer's ideas. And so each chapter was more and more disruptive. And most people quit doing them because they thought, well, I'll come back. I'm going to get through everything. The minute you skip the intermezzo, you're doing my worst nightmare, right? You're now getting through it. And sometimes, so uh, that's well, why I, I was guilty of that. I was guilty of that a little bit. Now, I did work the... Um, Intermezzo 2, um, which really focused on levels of worldview. I I love that one. And and so maybe I, I I didn't do what you wanted me to do there, but I I just kind of immediately loved it and started applying it and thinking about it in, in my in my work. So I found it extremely useful. Of course, but, but useful for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, useful for a different purpose, which was, here's some things I can use. Until you examine them with your own life, and I, I say to all my students I teach in universities, and I say, don't trust me. Under any condition, don't trust me. And I give you these two principles. Don't reject anything I say without deeply embedding it in your experience and the intermezzos were intended to be experienced or don't accept them. Because if you do that, you are now a guinea pig in the maze and you're not building your capacity to think for yourself. So book number seven, because I watched so many people do what you're describing and it sounds like you worked at it a bit. So you, uh, I have hope for you, <laughs> uh, but uh, I want people to realize the major problem we have with everything from climate change to racism is because people do not think for themselves. The behaviorists conditioned us to believe, sorry, I'm now working on book seven, but it's relevant to the intermezzo. Um, we are now in a behavioral era for the last 100 years, which was built on the two, well, five foundations, but let's do two which relate to your question. One is humans have no inner process. They have no consciousness, no soul, and therefore they can't think for themselves. Secondly, 
you need experts which were formed out of the behaviorist era who will do the thinking for you and you only want to trust experts who number three are using quote science and they're using of course positivist science which is fragmented and brings nothing alive anymore but down into pieces and every profession we have every um primary institution is based on behaviorism's ideas and the expert model is what I was trying to destroy with the intermezzo and say figure out some things for yourself by watching what I'm writing but I wanted it at two levels so you could have something to test uh, and I do my uh community means the same way i don't i write in semantic language when i'm with people and semantic language uh in uh named at least by alfred korzybski said that we need to write in a way people can't get what we mean in the first second or third reading but they get intrigued because what we're doing is evoking images. Semantic language evokes images. And so you have to sort through and understand what it means, not have objective language where you think you know all the words and don't think. So the intermezzo is all about disrupting that behavioral idea that you can't think for yourself. Yeah. I thank you so much for that. And, uh, you know, I, Going through this book, I, 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 it's not a very long book. It, it, it's, no, it's 140 uh, pages. Right. Um, so one might think, oh, this is a fairly quick read. But I, I did realize fairly early on this is a this is a workbook. You know, plan to spend a significant amount of time with this thing, and um, you know, you might need to set it aside, come back to it, and engage with the work um, uh, repeatedly, or you know. So yeah, I, I thank you for that. <laughs> and um, <laughs> including so I, the lecture. <laughs> yes, yes, I really appreciate that. I, I do want to go back to um, one a couple of things that, that you said actually. Um, and you referred to David Bohm and um, you know kind of what you what you learned from from that school. Um, and so this the chapter called A Theory of Change was really meaty. Um, I, I, I liked it and I like how you create, um, uh, you know, the, this model or the, this theory that brings indirect work into like how, how you've evolved some of that, that, that thinking, um, kind of based on, on some of those, um, that early education that, that you had. Can, can you just talk a little bit more about that? About the, uh, tetrad I did around the yeah. way. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Um, I work with something called frameworks, not models. And that's an incredibly important distinction because models are always guides to building the paper airplane, right? You have a template. It gives you the answers, which is what the behaviorists told us. Go get the answers from the experts. Frameworks give you a basis for questions based on how living systems work. They have no answers in them. They're like the uh, uh, space in which you are invited to think. So the uh, way I put together this book, again, since I'm working on getting people to think for themselves, was a framework. And there, we can't talk about all of it, but let's talk about a couple of things. Um, 
One of the things that David Bohm talks about, we can see the world on different levels. Same thing Thomas Kuhn was saying, same thing Einstein, same thing Sri Aurobindo and the mother, same thing Socrates. I, I read in a particular uh, band across many, many different uh, wisdom teachers. I'm mostly not interested in things which aren't at least tested for 100 years. Pop psychology is all based on machines and behaviorism, and, you know, I stay away from it. But the, um, the core that runs through all of them, and Bohm does a really gob- good job of describing it, is this idea of worlds. Uh, and he calls uh, three worlds. One is the explicate world, the world that's in existence that we can touch and see, and it it can't be changed much unless you destroy it, uh, make it back into powder and atoms and rebuild it. But uh, if we go to the implicate world, the implicate world is where we take direction from in this tetrad I gave you. And the implicate world is... Everything from our thinking to our uh, impressions that have not manifest yet. So if I'm thinking about a meeting I want to run, all the if I'm conscious, if I'm awake, all the planning and thinking I'm doing, if I'm not borrowing something I've already done, is implicate. It's it's implied that that's going to happen. He said, Bum said. That level is where we need to be working to see systems at work. At the level of explicate, you can't see a system at work because everything's dead. It's not moving. This machine, this house, this uh, field. uh, And so we have to learn to move up to an implicate order. And I won't go, the top one is supra implicate in Bohm's work, which is that which is forming and shaping all that is becoming implicate. You know, it's a much longer conversation we get. But just get the idea of learning to work with implicate, which the behaviors said don't exist. They said nothing exists except what a, an instrument of uh, an expert in an, in an expert's hands can see. So this book is about talking about learning what does the implicate mean. And I said there are three ways I've learned to do that. Um, And one of them is working on capability uh, because you think about the matrix. You want the womb, the matrix, to have the capability to deliver what it needs. Uh, And mostly the womb will take over because even in concentration camps, where women were starved, they produce healthy babies because the matrix will take what it needs. But it's better for all if we nurture the matrix. And so being saying our role is to build the capability of the matrix, and that could be of a child growing up or uh, a business coming in. You want the matrix to be healthy. Another word for that might also be the culture. And so that's the second thing I suggest uh, as the way, uh, and by the way, I use Phil Jackson and the. I love basketball and grew up loving it. Uh, Phil Jackson, who won eleven National Basketball Association championships, most in history, 
uh, with the uh, uh, Chicago Bulls and the LA Lakers. He uses this method. He works on not beating his team up or yelling and or motivating. He does it indirectly, building capability, building culture, and building consciousness. So that matrix, that uh, framework, doesn't have the what you do in there, but it said work on being a great builder in the matrix, as Einstein begged. Pay attention and develop the capacity, the implicate order to do better thinking, better conceiving, better understanding, better state of being, and then do all the work indirectly. So I came to that by looking at how this shows up in all of what I I call um, life development processes where you don't go to a cave and meditate for 30 years and then you're done. Uh, You actually use life as a substrate for development. So that's why I, this book and every, all my first five books before that and my courses or not courses, but communities with parenting and educators and others said, learn to do what Phil Jackson did, work indirectly on building these capabilities. And you, I try and draw from Lakota elders. I had Mohawk elders, but Jackson had um, Lakota from Socrates, from, I mean, all the great teachers who've said, in life is where you want to learn, not as a Buddhist monk or not as a monk. Um, and so that's how that framework came together, was looking across these indigenous teachings, the lineage teachers, and the quantum teachers. Wow. Um, a couple of things. You might you might enjoy listening to my conversation with Jeremy Lent. Um, yeah, really, fan- I like Jeremy. Yeah, fan- fantastic. His 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 most recent book, Web of Meaning, um, was was really up in in that in that realm. Um, it's fantastic. And and I also wanted to say, I you know I, I read this you know during uh, NBA Finals. Like it's now, I don't know when people will listen to this, but it's it's now the third week of June, and uh, the Warriors one just last week of course um so i was watching for that i was watching for the the phil jackson uh lessons well and of course uh, steve kerr is a protege and was on the chicago bulls and he credits of course phil jackson for what he learned and funny it's funny i just decided to send him a copy of indirect work day before yesterday so will have landed in the golden state warriors offices in san francisco we'll see if he gets there or if he does anything with it i send you two so he could give phil one awesome that that is really great so i want to unpack the um the triad so you do talk about in in your regenerative theory of change um uh one of one of the components is is the is the way and um you i think if i if i've understood this correctly um i I can look at at this approach as a technology of change, and um, and the components, you know, being um, capability, culture, consciousness. Uh, I'd love to unpack that a little bit more. Um, one of the the pieces that that kind of struck me in the capability chapter 
um, was um, some things that you were talking about around just kind of the the the, the way that we bring these capabilities. Um, there was a uh, conversation that I had with with Ray Eisen on his book, The Hidden Power of Systems Thinking, and what. I was struck with was, you know, there is a, there's a power to just employing systems thinking, but there's also this hidden power of systems that, that really can be mysterious and, um, uh, you know, hard to identify. And when you talk about destructive infrastructures that prevent or restrict the development of human capacity, that really came to mind that a lot of these things are, we, we don't we don't get them we or we fall into these traps or these 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 blind spots um and so just in terms of your you know how you look at your capability framework and how it maybe can help us navigate the complexity of systems or these these hidden systems maybe um yeah would you like to talk about that a little bit there's a huge question um i'm i'm famous from these gigantic questions right. Right. I'm, tr- I'm thinking, given that you entered at the point of capability, let's start from there as a way to answer. Your, or First, I think of my uh, offerings here. It can be used as te- technology, but I'm really inviting people to use them to check their own technology, their own method, their own way, and say, are we working indirectly or um and one of the uh, frameworks I provide is another one of those learn to think that things exist in different worlds. Um, and I, I don't remember what I called it, but it's about using the right mind, uh, putting the right mind to work. And most of the time we do uh, Einstein's thing like a billiard ball table and we make p- things things. So we make the world, I should say, to things, and it's all fragmented and chopped up. So if you want to be able to see systems, and not all systems are equal, not all system thinking, am I a fan of it all? I think there, some of them uh, are named that, but even Jay Forster said, please don't use my stuff on people. And, of course, MIT and folks decided, well, you know, Jay can't control us or whatever they said to themselves. So they ended up doing a lot of things like feedback loops. And in my uh, fourth book, No More Feedback, I talk about how the uh, psychologists wanted to get in with the scientists in cybernetic systems, which your show's name comes off of. And so they converted so much into the thing world and the science that was used in the thing world. You can't see systems from things that are dead and not moving and not working as a living system. So, for example, you can go study a, quote, watershed, or you can be from the Department of Food and call it a food shed, or you're from oceanographic, something you call it the airshed. All those are fragmentations. And if it's a watershed, you'll divide it up into a variety of things called rivers and uh, soil. And then you can study that. And you can publish a report on the watershed system. I've seen many of them. And they are not anything about systems thinking. They're about things. And so the base level at which we keep looking and thinking we're studying systems is a fragmented 
kind of way where we put things in boxes and create generic kinds of watersheds. I call it a life shed. Until you get to the idea of a life shed where all of those things are working together and humans, non-human species, uh, biota, and you're watching all that dynamic, you can't get to system thinking because you're in a thing world at the base level. The next level up is the process world. And the process world is where we decide to see as a flow. Okay, I think I'm seeing it a lot. It's alive because this happens and this happens and uh, this connects to that. There's this kind of relationship, and so we do all of this stuff um, in a way that we think we're looking at systems because it looks like a process, and a process is insufficient to what makes it alive because you're not looking at it working, but at it as it as almost like a camera where you take snapshots and move through something. So again, you can't see the process as the process level. You can't see system. So I'm going to go to the fourth level mostly because I want to do a little more here, which is if you can begin to see holes, which is what David Bohm cautions about, Yeah, I suggest everyone here read wholeness and the implicate order. The first, well, the second half of the book is all physics, which I had to read around because I can't do all the kind of math that's in there. But his core message, and it's in the title, is we have to stop fragmenting. Now, we have to quit seeing things at the level of things and the level of process and see it as a whole. And then the way to do that, and even when I tell you the way, you won't know how to do it because it's a big mind shift. It's like a quantum jump, literally, you know, Einstein's leap out is learning to see the essence of a whole. So if you go, which I got to do, uh, work with two major watersheds in British Columbia, and since you know the area, I'll use those. uh, One of them is the Okanagan Valley on the east side. And it has an essence because of its founding, its geological patterns, its hydrological patterns. And hydrological begins to give you a feel of what it means to see something at work, right? If I say water, now we've got a thing. But if you talk about hydrology throughout uh, ancient times, what we know about Earth, indigenous patterns, how uh, First, First Nation people engaged there, brought economics and uh, different uh, cultures to it. We now can begin to see, and we did something, I didn't do it, I have colleagues who do this, called something called storying a place. So you do what the evolutionary unfolding story of a place is. And you can say, what's the essence? Now, I've forgotten the exact words we used, but it was something like self self uh I think we may have used self-serving, but we didn't mean it in the way we normally, we meant they almost unanimously up and down that uh, valley uh, refused to accept British Columbia's version of what healthcare should be. And they established their own system where people took care of people. 
including what we normally think as experts, were merged into the living process. They weren't something that took care of people from the outside. They educated. It was like a whole different world of how people came together there. Now, I can understand the Okanagan Valley as a whole because I know its essence. And if you go out to Vancouver Island, you have, uh, I mean, that island, if you look at its hydrological and geological story, that, uh, and I'm not a geologist, so I probably won't get this exactly right, that section did not break off from the continent. It floated up from Peru, right? And it became over a millennia of time a piece that was uh, as rocks and plates and things are moving around. And it had a different set of indigenous people. Uh, and we got to spend quite a bit of time with uh, several of the elders. I got to take my grandson up. We did a storing of that place. And that place was had a very different story. Now I worked with British Columbia to redefine their economic development based on the actual storing of the essence of that place. And people said it was so profound because we were able, instead of doing planning for fiber, fuel, or um, food, which all go in the same place, we can understand the system and not have battles in the... Um, by the way, on my Vimeo channel, I have a video of the presentation to the, um, uh, what do they call them, deputy ministers and the minister of several different processes. Now, my point, so I don't wander off and get lost, is you can feel the difference of when you, if we had thought about British Columbia as a thing, and we divided it up by provinces and uh, disciplines and functions and so forth. We we would, and there were people who were doing that, they were mapping, quote, mapping all of the resources, all of the thing area, nothing alive, it's this and this. We had other people who were doing process and saying, we have to build connections and relationship. And they built so many task forces to cross over. Nobody could get to all the meetings. That's what happened happens when you do process thinking. You try and relate things, uh, see a flow, see a connection, put all the people who should be talking, but you can't, that's starting with a fragment and trying to put it together in a whole. Or you can do what David Bohm said, you have to have a way to understand holes. And my work coming through many language traditions, including my grandfather's, I learned about holes when I was very young. And I learned to see the world that way, and I couldn't understand when everybody kept talking about the fragments. So I, along with uh, a series of other people, evolved and drew from all these traditions on how you see a whole. It's learning to do essence thinking. And I just did uh, another podcast with Tyson uh, Wright. And we talked about this, about what it means to learn to do this. And he said, well, tell people how you can do it. Said, you can't tell people how to do this. They have to be immersed for at least a dozen years in a culture that's working this way. And then one day they'll get their first hint and then their next. And pretty soon you won't be able to see the world any other way. So that's what that one on the end of that framework says the way 
it has you know this triad of capability, culture, and consciousness. That's one of the examples I get of learning to work on capability to to cathect. That's a psychological word. In other words, make myself think at a systems level, but at a living systems yeah, level, because yeah, you yeah. can defend systems at those lower levels too. Yeah. I, I, that sounds so much like something Tyson would would, would say. So I kind of chuckled there for a moment. Um, yeah, I, I think it was about a year ago. I had an opportunity to interview him on his uh, book Sand Talk here on on this channel. Yeah, it's a great uh, book. A great book. Oh yeah, book. Uh, uh, fantastic. And so thank you for that explanation and using you know a very real example, one that I, as you said, can connect with. Um, the, the British Columbia example, uh, I definitely learned something there. But for me, it also really brought to life something that you said that in the book you, that you wrote in the book um, around discernment and re- revealing the essence of something. And um, and then I'll, I'll quote you, you know, from the characteristic patterns in the roles that a living system will choose and the ways it goes about playing them. That, yeah, like, I think that you really helped me understand that um, with that example. That was great. Let me give you a, a piece about uh, on that quote you just said. Um, one of the things I try and help people understand is how the do good model has created this old idea that every human should find their purpose. You know, every I mean, there are at least a million coaches alive in one county who are teaching people how to find their purpose. I did one of my five TEDx talks on humans don't have purposes. They have roles. And if you're in a system, I mean, purpose is something the system has. It's working. If you take uh, the two life sheds that I talked about in British Columbia, each of them have a purpose in a continent uh, with on a planet, uh, all of which are alive. And if every human thinks they have a purpose, we get in a lot of trouble because what they want to do is project what their ideals are. And then they feel so good, but you've just labeled someone and, and stamped on them almost impossible to reverse an anthropocentric of one human within a system. So I was trying to, in speaking in that little sentence, I think, although I wrote this book uh, three years ago, so I've lost a little track. Uh, But I know that the whole idea of moving us, and it's it's an ego thing, right? What do you mean I don't have a purpose? Of course I do. I'm a human, right? I have a... No, you don't have a purpose. But if you can become receptive to the, you are embedded in and nested in a living system, which you have a key role to play. And I have an opinion about what their role is, but I don't think the opinion is what matters. It's learning to really think about what is the role of humans and how can I be a part of helping the living system as a matrix create the health and vitality for life. Uh, so a little bit more on that one little quote. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I know we're going to uh, need to just wrap up here in a few minutes. Um, but there's something that that you, uh, another comment uh, that I've, I've underlined in the book. Um, you say that 
we See, can't... I also tell people, don't underline in my book. It's I, a bad practice. People, go ahead, read. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think we all have our ways and our, our bad habits, but um, I I do it. And it, 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 it has helped me here um, when I, I wanted to prepare for our conversation. Um, hey, so you say that we can't seem to rise above a transactional mindset. And you say that in the context of talking about, you know, the intersecting ecological catastrophes caused by centuries of value extraction. Um, Yeah, so that's obviously a big, important topic. Um, Are you hopeful that we can rise above a transactional mindset? Are you, is your goal here to provide some, some insights and some help on that front? No, Absolutely not. Uh, that would be me being a cue stick and moving all the cue balls around into the pockets that I think they should be in. What I'm working on, and uh, I run a business summit every fall, uh, which is the, one of the few open things I do. You have to be a member to be in most. And that one always takes on a subject. Like last year, we took on racism and looked at the premises. So I'm hopeful if we can work the way I'm about to describe, which is we worked on the premises that are social constructs that actually limit us from being able to see how things work. So for example, uh, racism exists because we think there's such a thing as race. There's no such thing. Uh, It's a social construct which leaves us a great opening to categorize and box people and then to define whether or not people fit there. And if they don't, they're given a a psychological diagnosis. Uh, You know, if it's mental health, it's ADHD or something. And so if we keep working on racism the way we are, we're escalating. Everyone can see it's getting worse. We are increasing the rate at which we harm people purely for the color of their skin or their words because they don't fit in our box. But we don't have any boxes. And if we can begin to see, I I wrote an article called uh, Essence is the Ultimate Diversity and Personal Agency is the Ultimate Inclusion. So that means each essence finding a way to be in service of something and we engage people from that place, now I have hope that we stop. If we keep creating identities and I'm identified with my white race or my Hispanic race or whatever it is, uh, anyone who doesn't fit uh, goes in a different box. And so our premises are so flawed. And even for climate change, we have uh, defined, and I listen to people and what they say are the solutions, and they don't know how to think nodally, which is what a premise is. It says, what is it that we worked on it? It would make everything move. And it's the premises. It's the false social constructs uh, like race exists, even like gender exists, Uh it doesn't. We have some things there to do for procreation, but I don't know. The last form I had to fill out for gender had eight options, you know, and of course, some people are disturbing me at past two. I think all of the extract value, and I worked in DuPont, I worked in mining, and people say, Why do you go work in those horrible places? And I said, Well, they aren't horrible people. They're living inside the social constructs, and you have a different one. 
and just fighting between years and elections and demonstrations and railing and whatever we do will not help us. We have to learn to see the effect our constructs have. And we can't, in spite of uh, Greta, what's her name, who I love, um, right, imploring us. Socrates said, um, the more we implore people and inspire them to go in a particular direction, the less likely they are to understand who they are and what they can do. And so Socrates, Socrates said the sophists uh, stand on a street corner and they motivate us, which she does, right? And they tell us great stories. And then we go away and shortly after, after we either forget or we try it and can't figure out how to do it and because we go away inside of our social construct and their social construct. And we're never taught to really look at how it is we're forming the ideas. So we do Einstein's thing. We use the social construct we've got and we're concreting the new. So I think if we can help people understand that the consciousness of being able to see our own premises, and that I do a lot of that within companies and other places, go back and question your premises. And I use frameworks like the billiard ball table and the matrix and the, the levels. All of those are just instruments and all in the same work. We have, uh, we have work to do as humans and we haven't we are incomplete when we're born in that capacity and unless we can build the capacity to use what it means to be human in our role I, you know I, i'll be long dead and you know my grandchildren will be dealing with it so that's an unpleasant thought but i believe if we could Pay attention. Many of the people you interview are working on some of the same things I'm working on. One of the uniqueness that I have is I do have a technology for how to do it. It isn't a philosophy. It's a practice with details about how you work on yourself and groups and community. Uh, and in book seven, I'm going to do a lot more about the role of business because I'm now convinced only business can get us out of this. I'll leave you with that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Oh, well, Carol, it's uh, been such a pleasure to spend time with you. And thank you for sharing your, your wisdom. I know that you have um, a, a meeting with, with some people on the other side of the world that you need to get to. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you go. But, but thank you so much for talking today with me. Well, Kevin, thank you for inviting me. I deeply enjoyed this conversation. I love what you're up to. So thanks for letting me be a part of it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This is Kevin Lindsay, and you've been listening to my conversation with Carol Sanford. We've been talking about her book, Indirect Work, A Regenerative Change Theory for Business, Communities, Institutions, and Humans. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, until next time, so long.